What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to this episode of Market Saints. It's the revival, back from the dead. Been quite a long time since my last episode, but back in the flow of things with the semester. Hopefully, I'll get stuff out weekly, bi-weekly, if anything flashy happens in the news. Got some interviews in the pipeline, which will be quite exciting. Today, we are starting with a topical topic, alliteration right there, already killing it, and it is on why you'll never own a house. In this scenario, you being me, Gen Z, maybe the tail end of the millennial class, you know, people that are going into the housing market having not already owned property in the first place. Um, Kind of a scary thought to thinking about a year and some change that I will be in that group. But uh, still got a little bit of time to hold on to the college life for now, I suppose. Now, we're going to start off with some numbers. I will articulate them to the best of my ability so that you can all see the table that I've made that is sitting in front of me right now. And before I go over that, of course, just like there's a disclaimer to be made where we all have to understand that housing and salary drastically fluctuates depending on the region you're in in the U.S., right? You're going to have probably much higher income in New York City than you will in Arkansas. But at the same time, there are things that measure this out, such as housing is going to be, cost of living is going to be way more expensive in New York City than Arkansas, and, you know, taxes are going to be higher as well. So that kind of evens it out. So this is generally the entire U.S., South, Northeast, West, Midwest, the entire averages of everything. So I've got four years broken down in front of me, 1950, 1980, 2000, and 2022, the end of the most recent fiscal year. And then I've got that broken down into three categories on top of that, average salary in that year, average house price in that year, and then the ratio. So how many times, uh, basically how many times your average salary did an average house cost? It'll make more sense once I get into it. So in 1950, the average salary was about 3,300. The average house was about 7,300. So that breaks down to 2.2 times your salary is a price, uh, uh, is a house price. Now, 1980, we got about 12 and a half grand is the average salary to 47,000 in a house. So it increased a little bit to 3.7 times. Now, 2000, we actually saw it go back down a degree or a point rather, where the average salary was about 42 grand and the average housing price was just under 120 grand. That equates to about 2.8% or 2.8 times rather. And then in 2022, this is the whole point of why this is even a topic of of consideration. The average salary is only 54,000 to the average housing price being just under $350,000, breaking to a really scary and miserable uh, number here of 6.4 times your average salary. Now, let's put that to numbers real quick. And we're going to pretend we're buying a house in New Jersey just because I'm biased, and that's where I'm from. So the average house, let's say 350 grand. Let's say you're buying a house, though, that's 370 grand. Look at you going a little bit above the average there. You're going to put 20% down, which is about just under 75,000. And let's say you took out a $300,000 loan, already having put 20% down, and you got a 700 credit score. The U.S. average is about 698, so let's just round it up to seven, make it a nice even number. 698 is even, but 700, better number. Now, let's say for you got a 30 year mortgage at 6.82% interest. You're paying just under about two grand per month mortgage payment there. 
but your annual pre-tax salary is only 54 grand. And I've already gone ahead and done the calculation for you if you filed for taxes this year, if you filed uh, separately, so not jointly, if you were single or married and still uh, filed single, you would have just about $44,000 after state and federal taxes. And just like that, snap, half of that is going to pay your mortgage, about two grand a month, 12 months, about 24,000. That is not pretty. That is not pretty at all, especially hoping that you do not have any dependents or anybody else that relies on you or your income. Um, You know, before you know it, you're kind of living paycheck to paycheck and you're not really able to siphon anything for retirement. And instead of doing that, and instead of living that paycheck to paycheck and having to budget like crazy, you decide it is more advantageous to rent, which is what so many people are doing and have chosen to do, not out of desire, but rather necessity, because there's no better alternative. And that alternative is not pretty either. The renting market has also gone through the roof, which we'll get into. Now, why? Why is this happening? Some people, which is the first thing we'll address, are blaming financial institutions, aka institutional investors, aka asset managers, private equity firms, aka somebody to the likes of Blackstone. Not BlackRock, easy to get confused, Blackstone, the alternative uh, asset manager. Now, between September 2021 and 2022, rental prices rose by about 7.2%. Usually, we see that rise by just about 3% a year. So double and some change, about double and a half, we saw that rise in a single year to year. And between July 2021 and 2022, we saw housing prices rise by 15.8%, just under 16. Now, to even add another year to that bracket, let's just say November 2019 to November 2021, we're seeing home prices rise 24%, a fifth of value in just two years is pretty insane. And something else that was kind of signaling that this is becoming a problem over time is in quarter four of 2021, we saw real estate investors crush records for having accounted for 18.4% of all homes sold in the US, up from 6% prior. So for the entire last fiscal quarter of the 2021 year, about a fifth of all houses bought were bought by a financial investor, one in five. That's pretty staggering, especially coming up from 6%. We've tripled in a single year, and that trend has continued over the last year into even 2023. Now, the problem is young people and anyone trying to buy a house, but presumably it's more young people than not, You know, people that have already purchased family homes and sitting on houses, so it's a lot of young people entering this market, they're being priced out. Because normal buyers just cannot compete with institutions that are offering all cash. And on top of that, you know, they're able to, to go over asking price. So, you know, if they're going 20, 30 grand all cash over asking price, for the average everyday person trying to buy a house, 20, 30 grand is pretty substantial change in price. You know, that can be make or break for pretty much everyone. You know, you're negotiating down to the to the hundreds of dollars even, maybe to the singular thousands. And these institutional investors don't even bat an eye. Like thousands of dollars to them is is absolutely nothing. So they're able to just overbuy in price and pay all cash. It's just an offer that as a buyer, you know, you can't refuse. Or as a seller, rather. Now, funny enough, COVID, I hate this word. I hate the fact that it's even coming up in this in this episode here. But it does have some relevancy. 
on top of all these you know, rising prices, we saw remote work, people started relocating to more affordable cities and suburbs to rent. You know, if you're living in San Francisco and you're working at a tech firm or whatever else and you're working from home for the potentially foreseeable future, if not permanent, a lot of people kind of are permanently hybrid, especially in certain industries. Let's say you move up to Oregon, same time zone, much cheaper houses. Uh, you want to, you know, be more in a tune with nature, live more in the woods, you move up there. Well, you're not a unique, uh, you know, process of thought there because a lot of people did that and now the problem is so many people started moving to more affordable cities and suburbs and that just hiked demand and you know now those properties are much more scarce and their rent increased too so it's kind of an oxymoron everyone flocked to the same place and the prices just rose there too now we saw people going to charleston orlando uh, and surprisingly wilmington delaware if you gave me 50 guesses even 100 guesses that probably wouldn't have been one of them um but this is a relatively new problem, that problem being the institutional investors in the real estate market. Institutional landlords didn't really exist in the U.S. single-family market until the 2008 recession, relative, I guess, in this case, being then like 15 years. So between 2007 and 2011, nearly 4.7 million homes went into foreclosure. By 2016, uh, by the help of uh, some government-backed financiers like Freddie Mac, private equity firms had acquired hundreds of thousands of single-family houses in pretty desirable areas at bargain prices, and they just converted them all into rentals, making money on rising home values as tenants just paid down the mortgages, right? So they're just making money on appreciating value. Tenants are paying down the mortgages. It's kind of a win for them. Now, some surveys that I got here just to kind of back how these institutional investors are as landlords there was a Department of Housing and Urban Development survey done in the past couple of years that saw that large corporate owners were 68% more likely than small owners to file eviction notices. You're able to rule with more of an iron fist if you're an institutional investor because you're able to deal with vacancies, you're able to kick out people that aren't paying on time or, or you know, aren't paying rent because if you have a couple of months of, of vacancy where you're not getting income to, to supplement, you'll be okay, you'll survive, like you're, you're all right. But to, to a small landowner who requires on that passive income from their investment properties, it's much more difficult to deal with evictions, to deal with those headaches of trying to get in new tenants and new leases. It's much more difficult. So, you know, people are much less lenient and, and or, or financial institutions, rather, are much less lenient uh, and much more harsh in how they rule. Uh, rule, wow, really made them sound like kings there. Um, and on top of that, these financial institutions are leveraging these massive apartment complexes, single-family houses that they're buying uh, in politics. So there was another survey done that detailed how private equity firms have been buying up apartment buildings in American cities and wielding their influence to shape state and local housing policy. An example of this in 2018 is Blackstone spent more than $6.2 million fighting a ballot initiative that would have allowed a rent control in California cities. There is no small landlord with a sane mind or enough free time or, you know, care that would spend over $6 million to fight the state of California on, you know, rent control policies. But these big financial institutions, $6 million or so, not really the biggest deal for them, you know, they'll go to court and, and be a thorn in the side. You know, these are other things that these small landlords, they just, they don't have the capital to do something like this. 
Now, while I've really kind of just painted institutional investors in quite an ugly stroke, it's really not entirely their fault. They're an easy target to come at because these financial institutions are faceless and, you know, they are part of the issue in this scenario. Um, so it's easy to blame them because it, you can't blame a single small landowner. You know, they're so trivial in, in the whole grand scheme that you could just blame all land, you know, landlords in general, which there's been like tons of social media trends to do so, which is an entirely different issue that's kind of more politically motivated than fiscally, in my opinion. Um, but as of 2021, institutional investors just own 3% of single family rentals you know, which is a small fraction of the just about 84 million single family homes in the United States. So again, they are the biggest minority, but um, they're just an easy scapegoat in this scenario. But you can't attribute an entire industry issue to somebody or a group of people who only own 3% of the entire market. That's just too small of a margin in order to really create a wave that would that would span all other 97 remaining percent. Now, the real issue then that I think, in my opinion, and many people would agree that is the problem is there's just not enough houses. Supply and demand, very, very simple. The country had a deficit of 3.8 million units, um, up from 2.5 million in 2018. So the problem here is actually local governments, neighbors, and local laws. So there's a lack of public investment, industry fragmentation, and there's restrictive local zoning and land use laws which there is a strong opposition to reforming those any of those regulations from homeowner, uh, from homeowners because they all share a key interest with these private equity giants, which is a return on investment. So the everyday landlord that maybe owns one or two properties, makes a nice living passive income on top of their annual salary, they're going to be in arms with, with Blackstone and these other firms um, in agreement because you know the easier it is to, to build more houses, the easier it is to... Um, fix this supply and demand issue, the the less that scarcity will be an issue and the more that their investment, their houses are going to drop in price. So it's kind of a conflict of interest. And in addition to this, we're obviously in a period of high inflation right now. And the Federal Reserve's effort to halt rising inflation by raising interest rates have caused a slowdown in housing construction because loans are more expensive. The flow of money is halting. Long-term demand and supply is going to continue to widen. The gap is going to widen, returning uh, or resulting rather in housing continuing to rise in price into the foreseeable future, unfortunately. To make this a bit easier, I've kind of made a list of 10 things summarizing this entire issue. I'm just going to go through it point by point. Got like a sentence or so to explain each one of, of why this is an issue. Now, I just touched upon it. Um, as to, as to why houses are expensive as they are. Um, the first one, actually the antithesis of what I was just saying, is lower interest rates because we're in a high point of interest now, obviously, you know, above 6%. Um, but the last decade or so has seen pretty relatively low interest rates. Now, when the interest rate decreases, the cost of financing a home goes down, more aspiring homeowners are inclined to purchase property, and the increase in demand almost always increases overall home prices. Now we're obviously in the opposite, where there still is an increase in demand. Um, but you, you not only is there not a supply, but it's more expensive to take out a loan, um, which is just even 
you know, double as bad. Because if, if houses were affordable and there was a lack of supply, then due to the affordability of housing, supply would increase. But now, you know, homeowners and builders, which I'll get to later on this list, have like a double issue where the affordability is an issue um, and people aren't willing to take out long-term loans due to high interest rates. The second thing I have listed here is an increase in local zoning regulations. Uh, exactly what I talked about before. Zoning regulations are like permit requirements, neighborhood restrictions, population density laws. More laws is means it's harder to build, which means there's a decreased potential supply of houses. And with a decreased supply of houses, scarce, there's less of them. That means the ones that are there are more expensive. Simple, you know, supply and demand. The third, which I already alluded to, foreshadowed before, for three and four, Three is higher construction costs. So tariffs and inflation have increased the costs of lots of imported materials, even domestic materials, inflation, it's just more expensive. And in this high inflation, in this very high mortgage rate environment, builders are struggling to keep houses affordable for home buyers because their costs generally are up more than 30%. So they're struggling, not only are they, they're struggling to build these houses affordably uh, at a rate where buyers can't even afford the houses originally, and now due to rising costs, their margins are getting cut razor thin and houses are going to continue to rise in price regardless. And these high construction costs parlay directly into four, which is there's lower builder confidence, which is directly correlated to the increased costs. So the National Association of Home Builders and the Wells Fargo Housing Market Index, which kind of measures builders' confidence, showed that January to December of 2022, every single month, Builder confidence in the market for uh, newly built single-family homes declined. Every single month of the entire year, the month was lower than the last. Um, and this is the lowest confidence reading since mid-2012, spared like a really quick blip of the initial pandemic onset when nobody knew it was going on at all. There's a bit of a blip there that was lower. Uh, but, I mean, you can't really compare the pandemic to anything. That's so unprecedented that you can't really compare anything um, to that period. So yeah, since 2012. The fifth is changing demographics. So millennials are drawn to mixed-use properties. Uh, there's a lot of people that are looking to diversify their income following the, the pandemic. And again, there's just a supply issue. Um, the sixth is there's increase in land prices. So, you know, this isn't as big of an issue, but, you know, still worthy enough to kind of list in if you had 10 reasons where population has increased, you know, the human population generally on the planet. And this is resulting in less available land, not that there's a shortage, but less available land. And so land is just generally more expensive than it was. Um, the seventh is government subsidies. So home prices have increased. The U.S. government has attempted to provide, you know, to ease these costs. And while these home ownership programs have been very beneficial for some people, they've also contributed to increased prices. You know, the argument is that subsidies are enabling these home buyers to pay more for properties, which is just pushing sellers to charge more. So kind of like uh, oxymoron there from the government, obviously helping a group of people, but still hurting, uh, you know, people that aren't receiving these subsidies because it's, again, just pushing housing prices higher. The eighth, which we've touched on a million times, there's a lower supply. The housing market is overcrowded with potential purchasers and an insufficient amount of houses to sell. Um, because banking institutions are lending to people with terrible credit and allowing them to acquire property. Just not enough supply. Uh, the ninth, which we've already touched on a couple times as well, is inflation. CPI is through the roof. Houses are not houses, um, just 
everything consumers purchase is more expensive. You know, the Russia-Ukraine thing with gas and whatnot, that was, you know, an issue for quite some time. Still sort of, but that's chilled out a little bit. Um, but food, still extremely expensive. CPI, from what I can remember, kind of peaked maybe like February 2022, like last year, um, and kind of had steadily declined since then, minus gas prices. That was what has continued to push the CPI up, at least in that period. But again, inflation was still a problem. You know, the Fed is raising rates because of inflation to curb it. And that, you know, that causes mortgage lenders to respond by raising their own interest rates, which ripple through the entire housing market. Um, and 10, maybe the most obvious choice that we started this entire episode on is just wages. Wages are not increasing at the same rate as housing prices, uh, which is the entire comparison that I started with. That I'll let me just go back to it real quick. You know, if you if you look at the differences here, you know the average salary in 1950, 3,300. Average price, 7,500. And then you know in 1980, we saw all right, the housing prices went up quite a bit, but also the average salary multiplied or, or, or quadrupled, went up by four, four times. And then going to 2000, the housing price tripled again, and the salary tripled to follow it. And now the, the housing price has tripled again since 2000, and the average salary has literally only gone up 20%. So 300% to 20% is the difference from 2000, because 2000, the average price was about 120,000, just under. Now we're at about 350. So, you know, that's about 3x, and the average salary was 42 grand. Now it's 54. Went up about 10 grand, about 20%, 25%, rather. My mistake. <coughs> Either or, uh, not a great look. So, that's why you'll never own a house. Hopefully, this is something that will be solved in the, in the near future. I'm not really sure how to combat this. I guess we have to kind of uh, combat inflation first and you know it's obviously cyclical with inflation and interest rate kind of uh, being the antithesis antitheses of one another i don't know i think that's maybe how you use that word properly but uh but yeah so simple topic for this i'm actually thinking about writing my dissertation if i do write a dissertation on this idea um on just the effect of institutional investing on the u.s housing market specifically just because i think it's quite fascinating um but yeah, that's this episode. Hopefully, I'll have a couple episodes in the next weeks to come. Um, I did launch a business with a couple of friends, Student Squared. I will be doing an episode on that, surely. Uh, it's a student consulting service. Um, more to come to explain that. You know, I'll definitely be posting it in the newsletter and whatnot. And I'm really excited to bring that to all of you. And uh, yeah, thanks for listening. <laughs>